What's up, Funkers? We're back. This is episode number four of What the Funk, and one that I've been really excited about for a long time. First off, we have Chase Nall with us, who's going to be one of my rotating co-hosts. Chase absolutely knocked it out of the park with Tripping Over the Barrel when he came on with me and Tim. Um, Has a lot of insight, recommended a great book uh, that I've been reading over the past few months. And Chris Dinkler, one of my kind of early career mentors, somebody who I consider one of the best salespeople that I've ever come across. And he also worked with Chase back when Inveris was drilling info and mentored him, I think, a little bit as well. So there's a lot of synergies to this discussion. And and Chris, truly, you are a sterling guest. (laughs) Oh, well, it's good to be here. Thanks for asking me to come on, Jeremy. Yeah, man, you're going to crush it. So we'll, we'll just jump right into this. Chris, today, from a business perspective, you're the chief revenue officer at Inveris, which is a pretty massive company, maybe the biggest energy tech company in the world at this point. So I know I appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to meet with us. You're trying to meet all your revenue goals for year end and all that bullshit that I don't have to think about anymore. Thank God as a consultant. But nonetheless, I want to get to know who you are. You've got kind of a fascinating past. You have a lot of very different interests. So talk about kind of your roots. I think you grew up a Kansas kid. You might've played basketball in college and then have built a pretty strong career as a as a sales guy and then as an executive uh, in oil and gas. So, so talk to us a little bit about who is Chris Dinkler. Well, yeah, boy, that's a, you know, I don't know how interesting that really is, but I, I appreciate the question. I actually was a Nebraska kid. So oh. I, grew up, I grew up in South Central Nebraska um, <laughs> on a farm and a really small town. Um, man, I, my graduating class was like 26 people, I think, or something. Wow. So it was pretty small. And then I went to, uh, went to college. In Sterling, Kansas, which is, I think, what you had referenced and had the opportunity to play basketball there. And that's where I met my wife. And uh, and uh, we've now been married for 28 years. And and so that's where I got in- introduced into oil and gas. I also got introduced into sales during that time. I actually sold Cutco knives to help pay my way through. Did you? I did. And so very few people know that. And so you had to, you know cut my teeth on uh, selling knives door to door when I was in college, but went, uh, graduated with an accounting and finance degree and then worked for a small operator in Kansas called Carmen Schmidt Inc. And it was a small operator, stripper well production in Northwest Kansas and, and learned a lot about oil and gas, about energy. And actually it's where I got started in technology. We uh, developed some uh, using <laughs> Microsoft Access and was pretty naive when we started, but developed the daily drilling and daily production and allocation system and even some ERP accounting, uh, joint interest billing, revenue distribution. That's what actually brought me down to Houston. And was so it was pretty naive when we did it. And that was in the late 90s and learned a lot. And I don't think we ever, I ever really appreciated how close we were to like, uh, not being able to pay our bills and then to do that, but that's where that's where I got my start, and uh, and again it was great and actually uh, started in support and operations in that, and then uh, we were struggling, and I took a trip to back to Kansas and met with some of my uh, our partners that I, we had dealt with in the operative world, 
and came back with several contracts and they said, uh, you're our new director of sales. And so that's that what kind of launched my sales career. So kind of school of hard knocks, if you will. Well, gee whiz, Chris, I didn't know all that. <laughs> that's uh, you're, uh, you're referencing, boy, you're referencing some old days there. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. So Chase, before you jump in, I do want to, to preface this a little bit. Um, I met Chris in very early 2008. Um, I knew nothing about oil and gas at the time, but I did have about five years of sales experience in selling technology. But oil and gas was brand new to me. And Chris, I think my first day on the job, oil was like 138 bucks a barrel, like like literally all time highs. And you were closing deals right and left. Mac was closing deals. I'd make 10 phone calls in a day and get three demos set up. Things were really, really good. And then they really, really changed fast. But you were like the legend. People were like, look, you get the deal to Chris Dinkler and he's going to close it. Oh, come on. I don't know about that. But, but you, I, you were crushing it. Yeah. Those are the days. And, you know, it was kind of funny to think about oil and gas. When I first got in the industry um, and I worked for that small operator, you know, we were, I remember oil was like 18, $19 a barrel. And that was late nineties. And you don't really, at the time, I remember when it, you know, I think it got up into the twenties and, and I thought, man, we are crushing it right now. Cause I didn't have any perspective. Yep. Yeah. You know, I didn't have any context of, of what that meant. And I was so, you know, new into that space. And now, I mean, and it was it was obviously very conventional vertical well stripper wells so i mean there wasn't a lot of the cost and the break evens were certainly different than a lot of our unconventional um wells that we see but yeah you come into those times where it's over a hundred dollars or things change and you certainly i certainly have much more appreciation now for the some of those uh the heyday that we were in in, in, the, in that time yeah. uh chris one question on that so little context as well. I met Chris and probably, when did you join at the time drilling info? What year was that? That was 2015. Okay. So I met you in 2015 and we worked together, I guess for three or four years until I left. But um, when you joined drilling info now in Varus, but what, what was your role at the time? I was SVP in North American sales. Okay. <clears throat> and then you went through multiple sales leadership roles and then the oil decks acquisition, you were GM of that business unit for a while. Um, and then I left when you were doing that. And then, you know, I think you had a couple more positions, but I'd love to, to just unpack a little bit as you've grown your career at now in Varus from, you know, really in the trenches with, you know, a, a team trying to land some of these deals all the way through kind of GM and now into CRO. Um, how have you seen your perspective change or the things you focus on change? Um, because it, it's so interesting. I have this window of time where we, we were really close and working together, you know, almost 10 years ago. Um, and then kind of fast forward to today, you and I have professionally been out of touch for a while. So I'd love to hear yeah. kind of your perspective on that trajectory. That's an interesting question. It kind of, somebody asked me that before, um, as far as advice for sales leaders and, and people, you know, really, trying to, uh, you know, continue on in their career progression. And I think my perspective has changed from, you know, early on as a sales leader, you're, you're sitting in the quarter and you're trying to make your numbers and mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're looking this far in front of you. Mm. And I think, you know, I spent a lot of time working on acquisition and acquisition integration at Inveris. And so it changed from really sales leader more to, you know, 
looking at as from a GM, looking at all of it, looking at not just sales, but looking at product, uh, uh, product and development and marketing. And, and really, you know, you, you act as almost a mini CEO in our model here at Embarrass when you GM. And it really changed to more strategy and long-term outlook. And most importantly, I would say the people. And so the, it, that, that's probably the biggest takeaway was that over, I would even say that over the last five to six years, that, that perspective changed. Cause if it's, it, it, it all is about the coaching and it really is your number one asset is the people. And so you can create more tech, you can constantly innovate, you're going to lose customers, you're going to gain customers. But if you don't have an engaged group of, of team members around you, it really doesn't matter. Um, none, none, of, none of the rest of it matters. And so I think that's always the, the balance that you have to keep and how it's shifted, really. Mm -hmm. Quarters, you're going to make a few quarters. You're going to hopefully you make more quarters than you miss. But without a solid team around you, um, none of that's going to happen. And one, one additional follow-up there. This is going to be a little bit of a nuanced question, but as you've shifted from more of the kind of tactical to your point, focused on the quarter in front of you, shifting to focusing on the people, but really focusing more strategy, more long-term. Are there any, um, I don't know the right word here, any systems or processes or best practices you use to think on a longer time horizon? Like how, how have you made that shift and how do you make sure that you're keeping your eye on the right time horizon? That's a great question. It's, it is all about the strategy and it's about making sure that the team understands the why behind the strategy and what, you know, why are we doing this and how is it actually um, going to get us to our goals? But most importantly, actually what I found, what drives that are the conversations with the customers. Mm. So ultimately being, having a very pragmatic um, process where we are engaged with our customers first and foremost, and really understanding um, what are they telling us? How is the market moving? trying to get in front of that to be able to ask our customers really leading questions. What if you were able to do it this way, this way, or that way, really challenging their thinking that begins to form up our strategy in Veris is I, I believe um, strongly is one of the most innovative companies um, in energy high tech today. No doubt in large part because of our product team and our account managers and directors and our, our intelligence team staying out in front of the market, being able to see what's changing and how it's changing. That actually then starts to create and inform our strategy, which drives our financial goal, goals and outcomes. And it's, we're then able to cascade that down to our team. So they understand, you know, our, our developers want to know that they're building something that's going to be used and used um, from a customer perspective that's valuable and helps them. That's what motivates them and gets them out of bed. But, when they're developing something, it's, it's really making a difference in the industry. We had a great acquisition recently, Rated Power. They're out of Madrid, and it is all around solar um, solar project design. Hmm. And that team and just seeing um, really that strategy is all around our energy transition and power renewable strategy with Inveris. But I, I'm telling you, it is so dovetailed um, into the broader global strategy around energy transition and so those things really tie nicely in and uh and seeing how all that cascades is it's super invigorating and, and really creates a lot of excitement when you get out of bed um, why why do we do what we do so speaking of bed right how do you sleep like 
I wonder this of anybody who's the chief revenue officer, chief executive officer of a company that has substantial revenue goals. And it sort of must feel like, at least I'm projecting a little bit, like when you're an individual contributor, you've got your number. But when you hit your number, you're kind of like, well, I did my job, right? For you, if you hit your number, then you know that things are just going to be like, well, you still have some people that are below goal and you have to get those people up. It's never really enough. So how are you able to balance like taking a break from work and still being a dad? I know, I know that you're a family man and you have other interests, but like, how do you do it? Cause it's something I've struggled with personally. I think that's a great question, Jeremy. And I think we could talk an hour just about that. It's a, my wife tells me I sleep well and I must be dreaming of motorcycles by the <laughs> that I do. But, um, but I do. I wake up and I think about my mind is constantly racing. But I, I would say that you got to enjoy what you do. Otherwise, to, to run at the pace that we, we all run at. It's not just me. I'd say everybody works harder now today than we've ever worked. And sure. I think in this society, even from a COVID standpoint, you know, it, we're now in a work from home where we go from meeting to meeting to meeting. And there's very little downtime. And so I think you've got to be able to balance those things in life. And I, and you know, it's a challenge for me, just like it's a challenge for, for everybody else. But for me, I actually really love what I do. And so I love thinking about, you know, right now I'm thinking about 2024, um, not 2023. And are we doing the right things today from a, uh, prioritization from what we're developing, um, what we're innovating in various segments. Cause we have very, I mean, in various, I mean, we cover not just oil and gas, we, you know, we cover financial services and midstream and oil field services, and minerals, and, you know, we deal with hedge funds and investment banks. And so making sure that we're doing the types of things that we need to do for each of those segments is what um, invigorates me. Um, that, that is fun. I think trying to find that balance though is really important because if you don't, you'll find yourself, burned out. And I do, mm. you know, from time to time, I, I kind of like, wow, um, we've been going pretty hard. And so sometimes you got to check out, but having a, uh, you know, Chase, I don't know if you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a grandpa now. So what? Uh, Whoa. Congrats. Uh, yeah, Whoa. Nine months old, his name's Holden. And so, you know, Jeremy, to your question, having your, your first grandson is a really good way to check you out. <laughs> you don't think about work. You're actually just, you know, I'm pop pops. So to him. So anyway, uh, that's, that's an interesting way to, to be able to do that. And it, it helps ground you pretty quickly on, on your why, on why we do what we do. And, and family is, is so important. Absolutely. So you mentioned motorcycling, but I want to talk about flying planes. Did you ever go fully through with that and actually fly aircraft? I did. So when I, you know, I got my, gosh, this was, I think when we, I can't remember when you left P2, but I remember getting my private, my private pilot's license back in, I think it was 2010. And, uh, and I got that. And then when I left to go to oil decks, I took a couple months off and to just kind of recharge. And I went and got my instrument rating in like, two or three months, just, I was, I was flying in the morning, flying in the afternoon. I was wow. doing classes during the day and, uh, and that was fun. And so I tell people you, and you talk about checking out, you know, when you're going down the runway, you know, and you're full throttle, you're not thinking about your quarter. You're not, you want your <laughs> landings. And so, but it is invigorating. It's, it's such a, 
thrill. I'm, I'm not flying as much as I, as I used to. I don't think I've flown in two or three years. So if I ask you to go flying with me, the answer should probably be. No. <laughs> Chris, uh, and I, I think we've talked about this in the past. My dad um, was a Marine Corps uh, uh, pilot and owns a little experimental plane. Uh, ironically, I just I bought a snowmobile and my dad asked me, hey, what kind of engines in that snowmobile? Why? Why would you ask me that? Well, my plane runs on a snowmobile engine, which I had no idea. Um, wow. And so, you know, my dad's like out in the middle of Briggs, Texas, flying this little yeah. experimental prop plane with a snowmobile engine. Uh, Rotex 503 is the engine. But anyway, when you when you go flying, um, obviously, it's been a few years. What kind of aircraft are you are you taking up? It's usually a Cessna 172. I had a Piper cool. or two that I bought and actually, um, and, and that's a Cessna 172 is a high wing. Piper is a low wing. And, uh, but I haven't, I sold that probably four years ago and, and I haven't really, yeah, I haven't flown much since. So motorcycling is, uh, is definitely uh, do a lot more of that. So you're a, you're a Harley guy, right? I am. I am. I love, uh, Julie and I will take off and we'll go on some road trips and we've been all over the country and, you know, I'm one to trailer it there. I'm not one to punish myself on hours and hours on the highway, but once we get there, we'll definitely ride in the mountains or the, uh, you know, wherever we're at. All right. So, sorry, Funk, um, follow up question. I'd love to know this. So I'm asking for selfish reasons. My father-in-law is also a big Harley guy, but he's also that guy that if he's, he's driving down the highway and he sees a bike in a garage, he'll stop and knock on the door and ask, you know, if they want to sell and how much they want to sell it for. Uh, and he has this amazing knack of taking old bikes, fixing them and flipping them. He's been trying for years to give me a bike and I'm terrified of motorcycles. They scare me. I scared the daylights out of me. So what would be your advice to somebody who is in my position? It's like you could get your hands on a bike if you wanted but you know, it, it's a little intimidating. Like what, what would be your, uh, your guidance to me? First of all, if he's giving it to you, say yes. And, uh, <laughs> and, and be grateful. secondly, go take a motorcycle safety course. And I did, and I actually rode growing up, but I think you have to do that now even, but it was, it's actually, I mean, incredibly helpful. And so a lot of the things that they teach you in that, um, is just, you don't, you think it's common sense. It's not, you know, just like your eyes, you know, you're, you will go where your eyes are looking. And that's normally where people get in trouble around curves is they're looking right in front of them, not where they're going. And, uh, and all of a sudden they find themselves drifting little things like that. So go take your motorcycle safety course. It's on a small bike and it's, you're going to be really hard pressed to, it's usually in a parking lot, like a yeah. ground or something. Uh, you can't really screw that up. And, uh, and then you'll leave knowing whether or not you want to do it or not. So my wife did that. Actually, she went and did the motorcycle safety course just to do it. And then she left and then she wanted a bike. So we actually bought her a little Kawasaki Vulcan, but we sold it because um, she just wasn't riding it enough. But yeah, that would be my advice for you. Cool. Thank you. Do you, do you take your bike out on those crazy highways in Houston? Hell no. <laughs> I was going to say, man. That's the other advice is, you know, stay away from doing stupid stuff. And so I, it doesn't mean that anything, I mean, listen, anything can happen at any time. And so I think you just have to be grateful for every day and every day, it really is a gift. And, um, especially as we went through COVID, right. I mean, so many people lost loved ones and, and, um, you know, you just went through a health scare, right, Jeremy. And so, yeah. it, uh, every day is a gift. And so I think you just, but you can, 
you can choose to minimize your risk. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, a couple things here. One, because we were talking about flying planes and fighter pilots, there's Ted Williams, the greatest American of all time, Hall of Fame baseball player, Hall of Fame fisherman, and also potentially considered the greatest fighter pilot of all time. I'm not sure if you guys realize that. Yeah, you know, he missed four years playing baseball because he was fighting in the uh, Korean War and was like notoriously one of the best fighter pilots that there ever was. I didn't know that. My grandfather was in the Korean War. Yeah, that's what's great. No kidding. Yeah, 42 to 46 or something like that. 42 to 46. And then he came back and hit 400 because he's Ted Williams and that's what he does. But Chris, to to bring it back to to me, because this is my podcast. It's all all about you, Jeremy. That's right. (laughs) One of the things that I credit you with, and, and I've tried to pass this on to salespeople who I've mentored, is you were the first sales manager I had who really taught me how to be creative and independent as a salesperson. I think when a lot of people think of sales manager, they think of hands-on micromanagement. I felt like you were actually the opposite of that and really empowered me to do creative business deals within reason, um, but to be able to make somebody feel good about the deal that they did in a creative way, whether that be pricing or payment terms or features or um, you know something that would cultivate a longer term relationship with the customer. You did a lot for me to help think creatively. And I, that's something I've carried throughout my career. How do you balance the ability to allow your team to be creative while still being a part of a massive corporate engine now that does you know half a billion dollars a year in revenue? You know, that's a great question um, because that's actually some of the biggest advice I give to some folks um, is, you know, you got to think, don't lose your entrepreneurial spirit, Yep. you know, regardless of, you know, the size of the organization that you're in. And it's a challenge. Um, You're right. You're exactly right, Jeremy. The larger the organization, that becomes a, a bigger challenge. We've had to incorporate things and we're just incorporating some, um, you know, a, a, we call it a deal desk, but it's not a deal prevention desk. It's really more to help our reps get creative around that. Because I think some of the challenge is, you know, we'll bring a new rep and they don't necessarily know me as well as maybe you two know me. And they think that they have to operate within a very strict guideline. Sure. But I think, you know, it goes back to really what we want to do. And what I would tell anybody in this profession is know your customer and know what your customer is trying to solve, not what you're trying to solve. Mm. And then if you're, if you know that I very rarely, you've probably remember hearing me say some of this, um, depending on how good your memory is, there's very few deals or very few, um, problems that we can't solve to get creative around to make sure it works for the customer. Cause ultimately this is about the customer and it's actually one of our core values. We used to call it customers for life. And now it's really, we've changed it partners for life because our customers are our partners and making sure that they feel like we're truly partnering with them. But that's got to extend down to how our sales professionals are engaging with our customers as well. And if we do that well, um, that works very, very well. And so, but it's, it's, you're right. It, it is harder. And I think that comes down to building leaders, which is one of the main tenants and one of the, my main passions is really building leaders on top of leaders on top of leaders. And it's all around how good our sales leaders are at coaching our team to be able to think that way, to engage that way, always with a customer centric mindset. Cause 
really it's, and this sounds idealistic, but it's true. Um, we're here to serve our sales team and our sales team is their primary uh, role is to serve our customers. It's not the other way around. And so if they're serving our customers, they're really, they have, they've, they should have that mindset. And we do that naturally when we start a company, right? I mean, if you think about when we start a company and you know, you're, you're, you're getting it off the ground, everybody is highly focused on engaging and doing, you know, getting really creative for the customer. You have to create more boundaries as you scale. Otherwise you can't scale. Mm-hmm. You've got one-off code or one-off, you know, code sets for, you can't necessarily do that for the customers. But you can get creative in how you structure commercial terms and things like that to make sure it's it's fit for purpose for the customer. It's a really good question and one that we're I think we'll every organization is always challenged with. And and it changes, right? Depending on organizational size, it can depend on market factors, right? You you reference COVID, and I can't imagine the pressures that you are under when you're selling to companies who are dealing with negative oil prices, right? Like that was something where I'm like, well, I'm not gonna hit my number. Like, because if I'm here to serve the client, how can I tell them that they yeah. need to buy new accounting software when they're just trying to keep the lights on? Like, if you can enter the data somewhere, keep doing that. And we'll start talking when things come back. Well, I think what we had to do, too, during those the, during that time is really, you know, you rethink, you reimagine. You have to get you have to get really uh, creative with contract terms. We partnered with our customers mm-hmm. in many areas, like whether it's price increases. Now our customers are giving us more price increase now because several of them even said, yeah, you're right. For the last two years, you've really partnered in some cases reduced in some cases, depending on the situations, they were all different. Right. And so we didn't, we didn't take a one size fit up fits all approach, but we also had to change how we were engaging our customers with the solution sets. Um, and I would say that that's held true now. If you look at 2019 versus today, customers are, it's all about efficiency, uh, especially in energy. The, the public markets have shifted. It's all about free cash flow, strength, uh, strength of balance sheet, return to shareholders. 2019 is, you know, drill, 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 you know, replacing production. How we're actually engaging our customers with the solution sets and what we're innovating, that changed. So how we're actually innovating to make sure that we're able to allow customers to continue to gain efficiencies um, is primarily how we're engaging with our customers. That necessarily, and that was pretty much true for even a lot of our competitors, that was not true in 2018 and 2019. And so you've got to be willing to adapt and you've got to be willing to um, not just change your sales process, but change your product roadmap to change you know, what you're building and, and how you're innovating. One thing that you haven't mentioned, we're almost 27 minutes in, and, and I love pointing this out when we have great sales leaders, is you haven't once mentioned competition, but you've mentioned customers like 50 times. And this is like a core uh, tenant of Jeff Bezos and Amazon, that you'd never focus on competition because if you focus on just being slightly better than your competition, that's all you're ever going to be. I agree. If you focus on delivering value to your customers and listening to your customers, then you will always be best of breed and a customer-centric organization. Everything Amazon has done over the years has been that focus. So I think it's really important, especially for the younger salespeople that are listening to this podcast, to hear how people like Chris talk, to hear how people like Chase and Matt Wilcox and when he came on, talk about their customer-centric approach because it's not just lip service. If you focus on your competition, you'll lose in the long run because somebody will eventually come along and focus on what the customers actually want. 
So I just wanted to kind of point that out to everyone because to me, it's a, it's a very vital part of how the better sales leaders and better companies operate. Uh, Go ahead, ahead, Chris. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, I couldn't agree more. It's a, I think internally we don't talk hardly at all. Um, I I got a question, I think from a, uh, I was on a, I was on a call with a financial institution and they asked me what I thought about the competition and, and I actually had to stop and think and I I said, well, (laughs) I go, we're aware of the competition and there's always going to be newer, you know, there's going to be new startups that are always starting and there's going to be, and I actually like it because it actually drives innovation. It, It holds us accountable and, but essentially we're getting that from our customers. Our customers are actually having that conversation with us about what they're trying to solve, their strategic initiatives, um, how they're aligning with the board of directors. Um, what are the most important things um, that are important to that customer in the market and how the market's shifting? And if you're focused on that, I think good things are going to happen. So I'm just, I guess, reaffirming what you're saying. Um, so Chris, one thing I, I, as I was taking notes this morning, thinking about stuff I wanted to bring up, um, one of the things that I was thinking about is, you know, if you're a, you know, I'm a, I've been in professional sales for almost 20 years. I'm in a sales leadership position at this point. But if I look back at all the people I've been in the trenches with, people I've learned from, people that have mentored me, you know, a couple names obviously pop up, right? There's um, Carl Scheibel, Matt Wilcox, and Brandon Taylor, Chris Dinkler, Jeff Hughes, Colin Westmoreland, right? Like, and, and I, I bring up all those names just to say that. Chris, for many years, you and I were kind of uh, being taught by the same school. Um, where you are today in your career, where you are with the size of your team, if you were talking to someone who's brand new to sales, mm-hmm. someone who a couple of years in, they're learning, what would be the books, articles, resources, lessons? Like, What would be the artifacts you would say, hey, if you want to really hone your craft to go study these things, what would those things be? That's a great question. It's one that's happening right now. I'm I'm so fortunate that um, I got an incredible family. Like I, I would just man, uh, I've got four amazing kids. The two of those um, are in kind of following in a little bit of this, our same footsteps. One's in marketing, um, in a great role at Mitra Tech, working for an amazing sales uh, leader in Ashley Estelet, and then another one, Braden. Um, my youngest son is actually working for a ERP provider they used to compete against. And uh, so I Quorum. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry. yeah, he's working for Quorum and they're, they're a great company. And they're oh, yeah. Um, and so I get to have these same conversations actually chase with him. And, you know, I, I would tell one of the, the piece of advice I would give, and I, and I don't lose yourself in it. Like mm-hmm. I was so focused on winning. Yep that that's all, you know, we're so competitive and you, you want salespeople that are competitive. And, but I would say sometimes you can, you can lose yourself and, and you, you lose that balance totally. that we were talking about early. And we've all done it too. And especially yeah. if you have a young family and I would say there's times I look back and I, and I, and I'm just, I almost am saddened because I remember more about my work life than I did some of my personal life. And it's actually, I'm like, man, that's a, that's a miss. And, um, and I've had the, you brought up Jeff Hughes, you know, when I came, when I came to Inveris, which was drilling info at the time in 2015, Jeff had came on a year later. I didn't realize how much, um, I had yet to learn. Mm-hmm. And 
And I, uh, Jeff is really probably the best leader I've ever by far um, had a chance to work for. And uh, a lot of what I know and my core tenants and my belief structures and, you know, we've become kind of private equity athletes really, you know, in, in our careers um, really has come from Jeff and he's just such a remarkable leader. Young sales reps often figure, you know, think they have everything figured out. Yeah. And I would say, have a, have a, um, have a mindset of learning constantly. And I, I see it all the time that the reps that are the, the most coachable and Chase, you probably remember this. You remember that book we all had, you know, back in the day, it was humble, hardworking, smart, the idea yep. team, right? Yep. And that was a Carl Scheibel, you know, Carl, you know, man, you know, God rest his soul. I mean, what a tragic accident that we lost Carl, but I think it is true. I mean, I do believe it's true. And I was having this same conversation with a couple of new reps. I'm like, man, you be humble, be the hardest working person and, and really on your smarts. And if you really feel like you're struggling from that, like you don't get it, ask for help. Yep. I would say I'm going to end with like this one thing. Don't be afraid to raise your hand and say, I don't know. Some of the new sales reps thinks they got it. They've got to, I've got to come in and I've got to prove that I've got this GBP nailed. I've got this account plan nailed. I've got my pipeline is perfect. It's mm -hmm. never the, the reps that I've seen that do the best are the ones that early on are raising their hand and they say, I, I don't know where to start, but I'm, but I want to know. And if they have that mindset of being coachable, um, man, typically we see their productivity just take off really up and to the right because they're inquisitive and that, that curious, that, that curiousness actually extends over to their engagement with their customer. So shocker, mm. they're asking yeah. questions, even they're asking questions internally, and that actually bleeds over to how they engage with their customers and their customers want somebody that's curious that Man. Know about that. So those two things, I think just be curious, be humble, be hardworking, be smart. And, and it's okay to say, I don't know. Do you remember Dinkler? Uh, do you remember Brandon Willen? Oh, I do. Boy, that's a name from the past. Yeah. Oh, man. I was talking to Willen the other day. So just for a little context for all the listeners, um, Brandon Willen was a gentleman who worked with us at Drilling Info oh. um, before it was embarrassing. Prior to joining, uh, you know, doing kind of oil and gas tech sales, he was a chicken farmer. He owned a chicken farm and he raised chickens for eggs and meat. I didn't know. Uh, and he was the hardest working dude. Um, the chicken farm didn't go the way he had planned. I think he and his partner had a disagreement in terms of kind of what the future of the farm looked like. And he called me up and said, hey, I'm thinking about getting into tech. Uh, I'd love to buy you lunch and just pick your brain. And I said, no, you're not going to buy me lunch. I'm going to interview you. Like, you need to come in. Um, and that dude was the hardest working, most humble, asked the most questions. Uh, he's running his own business today. But I, I use that example all the time to people as I say, well, how do you be successful? And I said, man, if you can take a chicken farmer and turn him into a really successful, um, you know, sales leader, uh, you know, he ran a global SDR team and just absolutely crushed it. Um, then, you know, those are the core tenants. And I, I think you're dead on there because those are really the three things that if you have those, if you keep those tenants forefront in your mind, you're going to have a growth mindset and a growth career. So I, I couldn't agree more with that. Shout you, out to Brandon Willen. Yeah, you can coach the rest of it, um, but you can't coach some of those things that we talked about. Either they have that or they don't. Tell Brandon hi when you see him. I will. I will. I still talk to him. Very fond memories. He's actually yeah, one of the best I've seen coming out of that. You're right. 
super humble, super hardworking and just crazy smart, you know, just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, simply put, you can, you can teach skill, but you can't teach will. Right. And, and that's a, you know, a very succinct way to put it. I want to talk about a memory I have also in in 2012, I was working for energy navigator. Um, And Chris, I think at the time you were oil decks. Yeah, it would have been it would have been early because I think I was at Oildex for two and a half years, I think, and helping them kind of recapitalize and and uh, yeah, I think that yeah, that's Come right, revitalize. Uh, and I I, yeah, I was at Nape and and I just lost a deal. I'll never forget this one. It was an AFE Navigator deal, AFE Workflow, that Ultra Petroleum, and I lost a quorum, and it was the wrong decision for them. Still eats away at me a little bit but there's nothing I can really do about it now. And I, I was so bummed and this happened. Literally. I found out like, this is when you couldn't get Wi-Fi on planes or at least the plane I was on didn't have Wi-Fi yet. So I land to this news in an email and it caught me off guard because we've been talking pricing and I really thought I had this deal. Then you could tell that the guy who passed the message on wasn't particularly happy about it either, but this was the group consensus. They wanted to go with a different AFE system. And, and I was just bumming. I didn't want to leave my hotel room, even though this is my biggest event of the year for generating new leads and opportunities. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to need to go find Chris. And, and I found you and sought you out. And you said a few words that still stuck with me. And I was bumming and I was kind of regurgitating the deal and you were listening and, and smiling. And you said, and I was just saying, I can't believe I lost. Like, I don't lose deals. I can't. And you said, listen, everyone loses deals, man. If you didn't lose deals, you'd be walking on water. And it's the same thing that I have to tell to a lot of the young CEOs or young sales executives that I work with that are used to winning and don't lose competitive deals very often is like, you are going to lose deals, even deals that you shouldn't lose. And you're going to get blindsided and things are going to happen and it's not going to make sense. And eventually you're just going to realize like, I'm just not going to win every single deal. That's just not the reality of it. But that, that really stuck with me, not to say it's okay to lose but you're going to lose like Tom Brady loses games. Tom Brady lost an undefeated season. Even the greatest winners lose. And that's how you learn. I, well, I agree. And what you just said, I think is the most important part of that is, and cause I, those that know me, I am very competitive. I mean, our family is competitive. We had a, a, it's a, you'll find this amusing. Our, we all play, ping pong and we had a Thanksgiving ping pong tournament and there was other people over and everybody was involved in it. And we realized it's not the smartest thing to do to invite friends (laughs) over because when it's just the Dinklers actually just going at it because we all hate to lose and everybody's kind of watching, they thought this is nice. We're just watching the Dinklers play ping pong against each other because like we hate losing. So we're a very competitive family. That said, um, what you just said, I think it's what happens in the loss. Like, the, and it's what separates, and I think this is true, not just for sales reps, but also for anybody in business and really in life It's what happens in the loss, mm-hmm. learn the great, the great ones will actually learn from it. Look at, you mentioned Brady and, and I've used this, some of you might even remember me saying this, Jeremy, but it's about how fast we play, recover and play. You're going to have a play that doesn't go your way how fast you recover mentally learn from that loss and then set it aside and then re-engage with a positive mindset that actually what I've seen, my observation separates the really high performers. And it's not just in sales, I think in product and development and marketing from the ones that are average. 
And, mm. and it's that learning. Nobody ever learns. You might learn a little bit in the success, but it's really in those losses that have it. We have a great opportunity to learn. And that might be not just in a sales engagement. That might be a promotion you're looking for. Yeah. It might be, I got some really tough feedback internally because my how was really not what it should be. I, I showed up not on my, not on my A game, maybe said something I shouldn't have said, mm -hmm. maybe had a bit of a sharper tone than I should have had. And then all of a sudden I get some feedback. Am I going to learn right there? Am I going to apply to do better? Because none of us comes at it, like you said, perfectly. And so um, I like to ask, sometimes I'll ask folks, I'm like, tell me about your failures. And they said, well, I didn't have any. I'm like, well, <laughs> but then we're not trying hard enough. Yep. Because if yeah. we're really pushing the envelope and we're trying, you're going you're gonna to fail. And you just will. And it's how we learn from that failure. And I think celebrating, I like kind of saying, celebrate your failures learn from them and share it, mm -hmm. um, share it with people. Jeremy, you probably remember, I kind of, I forgot about this until you brought this up, but we talked, there was a great book that I read before is a long time ago called flawless execution. Oh, I remember that. Now, you remember that? Yeah. And it was all about sharing our wins and sharing our losses mm -hmm. and actually getting better and better and better and letting other people learn from that. But I think until we're vulnerable enough to be able to do that, it's, but it, it starts with the leader doing it. And, and then the rest will follow. Then the people under him or her, uh, whomever, will start to be more confident sharing that. So I think you have to create that culture. It's not easy to do. And I don't think we're there, even if I look at our own organization. But I think that's the desire. And that's the ideal state. Yeah. A uh, yes. And a mentor of mine used to call that the accumulation of points. And I never really understood what he meant. And he said, you know, over over a career. Uh, or even over like one role, you know, your, your chances of winning are X and hopefully, you know, they're, they're, your chances of winning are higher than losing. But over time, as you pick up these little nuggets of wisdom and you, you have those losses where you go, okay, what could I have done differently? And you incorporate that learning, you're accumulating points, right? And those points increase your chance of winning. And, and maybe over a career, you increase it by 10%, whatever, right? Just throwing out numbers here, but you know, imagine a 10% greater chance of winning a football game. Mm. Over time, it makes a meaningful difference. And so this mentor would always tell me like, hey, just make sure you're, you're gathering points, you're accumulating points. And I, I think having going back to that growth mindset, you take those losses, you say, hey, what could I have done differently? And then if you if you're astute, you don't make that exact same mistake again, maybe you make a different variation of that mistake. Yeah. But you don't make the same mistake. And then over time, it's like, oh, well, I've lost a deal myriad ways, but I didn't lose a deal the same way twice. Right. Yeah. And over time that, that really does increase your chances of winning overall. Yeah. Well said, Chase. You bet. That's really good. We got a couple more minutes here. And Chase, I want to, I want to bring you back to the fold. When you came on tripping over the barrel, mm -hmm. you had kind of what I considered like a dream job. You were working for an investment group. You were advising yeah. various different startups. And then to my surprise, you took a job heading up kind of a startup group. What, what talk about your transition a little bit and what you're working on right now? Uh, I will. I'm actually going to pull Dinkler into this. Um, just because Dinkler and I had a really, uh, there've been a couple points in my life where Dinkler has been really, uh, by the way, I don't call him Chris. I call him Dinkler. Yeah, everybody everybody calls me Dinkler. I don't think yeah, I he's, he's Dinkler. Like I, I, Chris is always someone else. Um, Anyway, there have been a few key moments in Dinkler and I's relationship that I still think back to. The first one, I won't tell the whole story, but the, the, the first real engagement Dinkler and I had was a disagreement. 
um, we were heated in my office in Austin over, I was running an SDR team at the time and Dean thought I gave a lead that turned into a significant deal to the wrong team. And mm. I was on the, on the wrong side of Dean for that one. But anyway, <laughs> um, I left again at the time it was drilling info. I left drilling info in 2018, the end of 2018 in large part because I wanted to go somewhere smaller. Um, and so I joined a tech company out of Austin and was there for a couple of years, left in February of 21, uh, and moved to the Pacific Northwest. I'm in Seattle, Washington, um, for, for those of you who can see my background. Um, and I joined a, a venture capital firm and I was basically a fractional CRO for all of their, uh, 50 portfolio companies. And it was a dream job. It was, you know, you learned a ton, you got to see a ton of companies. Um, but Dinkler, you know, pulled me aside and said, like, hey, man, you know, you walked away from a really uh, promising career here at Embarrass. You know, you were well positioned to to go do some crazy things. Like, why would you do that? And, and I bring that up because it was a really good question. And it really caused me to think about what I wanted. Um, and I still think about that conversation because. You know, maybe I maybe I did make a mistake by leaving Embarrass uh, Drilling Info at the time. Maybe not, but what it ultimately did is it made me think about you know what do you want to do when you grow up? What are you really passionate about, and what do you want to do? And while the the venture capital firm uh, was one of the best groups of people I've ever worked for, uh, and I full disclosure work for a portfolio company of that venture capital firm today because I feel so strongly about that group of people. But what I really wanted to do was lead a sales organization. You know, it's fun to be able to jump into these different companies and consult and advise. Um, you get to you get to experience some really fantastic context switching, but you don't get to get in the trenches with a group of people on a day in day out basis. And that's what I really want to do. You know, I, I love to see people grow in their career. Um, I love to mentor people. I love to help them be successful. And so, yeah, I shifted over. I'm in the logistics industry now. I I lead a team and we help. Uh, small independent trucking companies um, get paid quicker on their invoices and and literally help them fuel their growth. Uh, and it's a really rewarding, fantastic organization in a really exciting market. I never thought I'd be in oil and gas. I never thought I'd be talking to truckers every day, but I love it and I love my team. Um, but it was that question from Dinkler of like, hey man, why'd you make that decision that really made me think, huh, you know, what, where do I want to spend my time? Where do I want to invest uh, my time? And, and, you know, you got to love what you do to, to paraphrase Dinkler from earlier in this conversation. So I uh, hope that answers the question. Oh man, that was, that was great. How freaking good is this guy, Chris? He's good. I tell you, that was, I remember when Chase left, I was like, oh man. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a punch in the gut. However, I will, I, and I say this to a lot of our leaders, ultimately, our job is to actually make sure that they land um, where they want to land in their career. And that may not be embarrassed. It might be our job is to actually prepare them for that. And then they land taking, you know, they're running sales somewhere else. I mean, look at Chase. And if that actually, you know, brings me a lot of joy knowing that Chase is doing what he's doing right now. And that we were able to be a small part of it. And it's a small part because, you know, Chase is a rock star. I mean, like he's, you know, he's one of the best I've worked with. And uh, so it's fun to see. Chase, it's fun to see you doing what you're doing, man. I mean, thanks, really, brother. You too. Congrats. You know, Chris, back in your Dinkler, sorry, back in your um, oil days. 
my boys are going to watch this and then they're going to start and I won't be with dad. It'll be, Hey, Dinkler. Dinkler. (laughs) Uh, When you were at oil decks, you were trying to recruit me over there. And um, I remember wanting to do it because I really enjoyed working for you in the time that we had together at, at was Bolo well point systems just before the whole P2 thing. And ironically, what kept me from joining you was what I saw you do at Bolo. Like I wanted to be the Chris Dinkler, but of a different company. And you're like, no, come over here. I'm like, no, but they're too, they're too far down the path. I want to do what you did. We had to try. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) You put the, you put the old college try out there, but it was sort of like, I saw what you did. And ironically that kept me from then working for you because I wanted to make that impact myself. Right. So Kudos to you, and also sorry because you were so good at what you did in those early days at Bolo. But. Well, listen, man, I saw you go out and crush it. I mean, what you did at, at Seven Lakes and what you did, I mean, watching your engagements, I would hear about you when we would talk to customers, and it was fun actually watching you achieve what, I mean, in large part, I think that company's success was, you know, Jeremy, you had no, you had no there was no shortage of your impact on that company's success. And I think it's now at uh, seven le- or uh, uh, yeah, w. W energy now. Yeah. And that's a huge part of their growth strategy from what I hear. And so no question. Um, you ought to feel incredibly proud about that, but it was fun watching that. And it was fun watching kind of seeing some of these press releases come out. And I remember seeing some that you engaged with Devin or something, yeah. you know, kind of going back and that was, that was super fun to see you um, just go crush it in your career. Thank you, Chris. And, you know, I, I owe a lot of that to the mentors I had like you um, early on in my career. And unfortunately, people who were not like you that were <laughs> the other learn, side of the coin. You got to learn from you got to learn from all of it. Right. Sometimes you yeah. learn what to do and sometimes you learn what not to do. And so, uh, yeah. Well, Often the what not to do is more impactful than the what to do. Right. It's like, oh, my God. oh man, I'm never doing that again. Yeah. Good luck selling that in a job interview, though. So, so why should we give you this job? Well, I know what not to do. <laughs> so, I got one yeah. last one last question for Chris, and then we'll we'll let you get back to to crunching your twenty twenty four numbers. But you did something that I struggled to do in my career, which was successfully make the transition from top dog individual contributor to VP of Sales, Chief Revenue Officer, Business Executive. How were you able to do that? Because it was always hard for me where it's like, well, if I move you from your sales job that you're crushing to a management job, then I lose my best sales guy. Hmm. How were you able to make that transition? And now, I mean, most people that meet you think of you as like a corporate executive. I think of you still as a sales guy who made that transition. That's an interesting question. Um, and that's one that we struggle with at t- from, time, from time to time. I think it's also one of the biggest risks organization ha- organizations have. The natural thing is to look at your top performers and say, you know, they, they should lead. That's not always the case. And not everybody wants to lead. And I think what we've seen is their sales. I think you got to ask people, why, you, why do you want to be in leadership? Um, what I've typically seen, and I, and I see this across industries. I've talked to other CROs and sales leaders. There's a lot of reps that want it because of a title or they want it. Yeah. Sales professionals have to have a little bit of a stronger ego. They just do. Yeah. And I think we all do. And because it's that will to win, it's that competitive nature and, you know, is it to go out and compete. Right. So you got to have a little bit of, you know, tenacity and swagger. Sometimes, oftentimes, 
that leads reps to want to take on a role for the wrong reasons. And they, they take on that role because they want the title or they want the authority or they want the, the compensation. And, and I think really what we try to coach to is you, you really need to be, you really should want to take it on because your job is to serve them. And there's actually a great book and I love it. And I, 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 I like all of our leaders um, to read it and it's called The Servant by James Hunter. And it's really all, it's all about servant leadership. I don't do this great all the time, but it's an ideal that I aspire to is you should want to get into leadership because you're wanting to serve others, not because of, you know, what you're trying to do. Mm. I think people have asked me like, how have you, you know, you know, how did you get to become the CRO? Sometimes I have to look back and like map it out. And I just did what the organization needed. Because I actually took a step back. Chase remembers this. You know, I went from SVP of North American sales to I actually ran a much smaller piece of the organization. And I have to look back. And at a time, we actually had a CRO leave. And I had to be okay that I wasn't tapped for that role. And it wasn't the right role for me at that time. Like that, it wasn't. And I think looking back, I wanted it, maybe wanted it for the wrong reasons. I actually took a smaller role and then started working on, I, had a great conversation with Jeff Hughes and, he, and it really resonates with me. And I try to do that with our leaders. And he said, what do you want to do? Like, like, what do you want to do in your career? Not just right now. And we were able to really unpack that. And really what I wanted to do was lead cross-functional teams, which led me to um, more acquisition integration, uh, which ultimately led me to the general manager role of business automation. And to, to date, I, I love that role. Like I, it was one of the best, and Jeff told me, I remember he said, it's going to be one of the best roles you ever had. He was a GM at um, NCR and he was right. Um, it's actually to this, to, 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 to today, it may probably right up there with the current role that I'm in. And then was asked to basically go um, take on the CRO role, which in large part is doing a lot of what I did as a GM because I'm working across departments of, you know, collaborating with product, collaborating with marketing and collaborating with development um, really so we can achieve our um, goals and our strategy. But if I bring it all the way back, Jeremy, you've got to be able to, I think, sometimes take a step back, take lesser roles and be focused on what, how am I providing more value to the, to the organization that I'm with and then trusting your leadership over the long haul. But if I would have just left and said, oh, you didn't select me for that role, who knows where I'd be right now, you know? And so I think sometimes you got to get back to that humbleness and um, say, hey, you, you, you got to take some ups and you take some downs. And, and the downs aren't actually downs when you look at it in the long term. It's actually just it's taking you to the path that I think ultimately you're, you're you know, really designed to be in and you're and you're learning along the way. So I don't know if I answered that question. Or oh, not. yeah. No, that's <laughs> that's awesome. Chase, any final thoughts before we sign off? No, I, well, yes, I really like that last piece. I think if there was, if you're if you're young in your career, you're aspiring to leadership. I think there was a lot of wisdom in what Chris just said. The first, a couple points. The first being, you know, good salespeople don't always make good sales leaders. And if you want to get into sales leaders, ask yourself why, or sales leadership, ask yourselves why, because um, it's a different game, uh, and and you got to find joy from a kind of a different piece of it. You're not the superstar winning the deals anymore. Uh, and you got to be okay with that. You got to you got to enjoy watching other people do that. But I think the other the other piece, you know, I uh, 
I'm thinking of my own career as, as Chris tells this story about, you know, I left drilling info and I went to another organization. It turned out to be a huge miss for me. Um, learned a ton, grew the organization. There were, there was a lot going on and, and ultimately it, it wasn't as successful as I would have hoped when I joined. But I look back on that now. I live in a part of the world that I love doing what I love. And none of that would have ever happened had I not taken that miss. Um, and I think it's important to take a step back and look at the whole thing and go, Hey, that two years or that however long it is for, for your career didn't pan out the way I wanted. Um, but I wouldn't be where I am today. And I, I had to take valuable lessons from that. And so I, I think there's a ton of wisdom in those comments, Dinkler. And, um, it's one of those things, unfortunately, that you really don't, you don't see it until later on in your career when you're early on, it's hard to have that perspective. You just haven't seen enough cycles. Right. Um, but yeah, man, you got to You got to look at the long game. It's so important. So I appreciate Chris, you sharing that. Sure thing. Well, I appreciate both you guys coming on. This is one of my favorite podcasts ever. I'm not just saying that it's true. I love when we can pass on fundamental lessons to salespeople, but the truth is you just have to experience it yourself. Right. I think all of us have and all of us continue to um, in our, our journey of our lives and our careers. So happy holidays to everyone. Hanukkah for me, Christmas for you guys. But spend time with your family. That's what it's all about. Well, hey, Jeremy, thanks for having me on. It's great to be with you and Chase. And congratulations on your success, man. It's been fun watching you. And so I've, uh, I've kind of secretly watched some of these podcasts. I'm like, man, maybe maybe one day I'll get on there with Jeremy. But yet, you know, like I told you before, podcasts aren't necessarily my thing, but uh, if I was ever going to do something, I'm so glad it was with you and, and uh, congratulations, man. And Chase, uh, to you as well. Tell Carly, we said hi, Julie said hi and uh, happy holidays to everybody. Yeah, man. Y'all take care. Bye.